Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good to hear. Good to hear. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity to speak to you once again. Um, the last time I spoke, I got a lot of encouraging words from you guys. So again, thank you so much for that. It really, really meant a lot to me. So I have to say that this sermon that I put together is easily the most difficult sermon that I've ever done. Um, and I think that you'll understand why very shortly. Both mentally and emotionally, this subject matter can be very heavy. So this morning, I'd like to start by asking you a question. What do you believe about God? If you were to describe God to someone, what would you say? You'd probably say something along the lines of, God is good, God is loving, God is kind and merciful and full of forgiveness, and God is all-knowing, right? And why do we describe God that way? Well, the Bible describes God that way. In Romans chapter 11, verse 33, it says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. Psalm 108 says, For your loving kindness is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the skies. In Psalm 107, it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 says, Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. And finally, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah even though we were dead in our trespasses. For you are saved by grace, together with Christ Jesus, who also raised us up and seated us in the heavens, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast." And we could keep going, right? There's lots of verses in the Bible that talk about God's love and mercy and kindness and so on. But let me ask you a different question. What does the world believe about God? Now, I'd like to show you a video that some of you may have seen. It's of an interview with the British actor Stephen Fry. Suppose what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite of your protestations, suppose it's all true, mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, what's known as the Odyssey, I think, I, I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. That's what I'd say. And you think you're going to get in on no, that? but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Now, if I died and it was, it was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it, because the Greeks were 
they didn't pretend not to be human in their appetites and in their capriciousness and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-beneficent. Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac, totally selfish, totally... We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a, a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. So, you know, atheism is not just about not believing there is a, is not believing there's a God, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. That sure is the longest answer to that question <laughs> that I ever got in this entire series. If God is all the things that we say he is, all loving, all powerful, all kind, all knowing, then how are we to respond to a broken world that is filled with violence, deadly diseases, and seemingly endless events of random pain, random suffering, and lives being cut short due to no fault of their own? It's at this time that we come to today's key scripture, which is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It says, Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So my dear brothers and sisters, what is your defense? Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, when it comes to the many tragedies in this world, and in the face of pain and suffering, we admit that we find it hard to understand why. We know that we are so limited in our understanding, and we are limited by time and our place in this world where you can see all ends. Your power and knowledge knows no end, just as your love and grace knows no end. Father, our desire is to see your will being done here on earth, in our country, in our homes, and in our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen. It seems like anywhere we look, we see terrible things evil events happening around the world, terrorist attacks, disease, and events that result in pain, misery, and death. According to the UN, nearly 20,000 people have been killed in Iraq between 2014 and 2015 in ISIS-related incidents. And we've heard the horrific stories of these mass killings of men, women, and children. 
In March of this year, three coordinated bombings took place in Brussels, which killed 32 people. Before that, in November of 2015, Paris was attacked, killing 130 and injuring another 368 people. But these are just the tip of the iceberg because we know that so many more of these attacks take place around the world that we rarely hear about. But because these things happen in other countries, they don't necessarily hit home for us. We know that, yes, these are very sad events, but for the most part, we can go about our lives relatively unaffected. So let's turn our attention back home. Remember, we started this morning talking about God's grace, his love, his power, his kindness and goodness. And in the video we watched, Stephen Fry mentioned children who get cancer. So how many children in the United States do get cancer? Nearly 16,000 children are diagnosed with cancer every year. Now the good news is that 88% of those children will live thanks to advances in medicine and uh, techniques. But of course, that also means that 12% of those nearly 16,000 kids will die each year. And when we think of random acts of violence, all I have to do is say the words Columbine, or Virginia Tech, or Sandy Hook. The school shooting at Columbine happened in 1999, and it'll always be a little bit more significant to me because I was in high school at that time. I remember watching the events on the news that evening. This was well before the days of Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. And I remember going to school the next day, and it seemed like every single teacher wanted to talk to us about what had happened. And the talks ranged from wanting us to feel good and comforted to making sure that we report any suspicious activities. And once again, we do have a small silver lining when it comes to these school shootings. The reason these particular schools stick out in our minds and the reason that they make headlines is because it's very rare to have the number of victims that they had. Sadly, however, while doing this research, I found that there are many more school shootings that happen that we don't hear about. In 2015 alone, there were 20 gun-related incidents at schools, which resulted in 19 people dying. So what do you say to the mother or father who has lost their child to a drunk driver? What do you say to the spouse who has lost their husband or wife to a random act of violence? What do you say when someone dies just from having minor surgery? And the list can go on and on. People die all the time around the world from things that we could never anticipate or avoid. Was God punishing them? Is God punishing the family of those victims? Why does God allow these things to happen? Why isn't God protecting us from these things? Now, I don't know about you, but I pray for God's protection every single day for my wife, for my family and friends. And thankfully, none of these things have happened to us, but that doesn't mean that they still couldn't. These are very difficult questions because these are very emotional 
questions. But the fact remains that as believers, we need a response. The world is begging for a response. In 2015, the Pew Research Center published its latest findings on faith in America, and this is what they found. The number of Americans who identify themselves as Christians is falling. In fact, most faiths in America are down. Within a seven-year period, people who identify themselves as Christians fell by nearly 8%. Conversely, the percentage of people who identify themselves as religiously unaffiliated, which includes atheists and agnostic, rose nearly 7% in that same time period. So when these terrible events happen, whether around the world or in our homes, the question gets asked, why? How does any of this make any sense? Well, the response that's being heard is this. The reason you can't make sense of these terrible events is because there is no point to any of it. There is no cosmic designer with some grand plan. You think that if there was a God, that he would create a world like this, filled with misery and suffering. There is no point to any of it. Things just happen. There is no why. That's the message that's getting heard across this country, and we're seeing its effects by the number of people who are walking away from their faith. And we know that Christianity does have an answer to these questions, but it seems like many Christians don't know what it is. So in our remaining time, I'd like to try and form some kind of response for us, because I think that if we can form some kind of foundational response to this, that it'll help not only ourselves, but others who are going through these difficult times. So the first thing we need to do is answer a question. What is the purpose of life? To non-believers, this is the ultimate question. And many would even say that it's unanswerable. But for believers, this is actually an easy question. When Jesus was asked in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, which command in the law is the greatest? What was his response? The greatest command is this. Make sure you and your loved ones are happy and safe each day. And the second is like it. Avoid pain and difficulty at all costs. That's not what he said, was it? No. What did Jesus actually say? Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You'll notice that our purpose and Jesus' greatest commands to us do not mention our comfort or safety or happiness. The fundamental truth that every Christian needs to understand is that God's purpose for your life is not to make sure that you are safe and away from dangers. In fact, Jesus said just a few chapters earlier, you will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures it to the end will be delivered. 
Later in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says to his disciples, Then they will hand you over for persecution, and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Some people seem to think that God just wants to keep us safe like we're some sort of pet. But if you actually read the Bible, at no point have Christians ever had it made in the shade. Just look at the 12 disciples. Historians believe that, or sorry, the only disciple that historians are confident did not die for their faith was John. But the rest were executed. The second point we need to make is this. God does have a plan for your life and the events that happen. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this may be one of the most important aspects of this whole conversation, because so often we can ask, what was God's plan when this happened? What was God's plan when that happened? And the truth is that we don't always know what God's plan was. However, there are times when we can get a glimpse of God's sovereign plan during these terrible events. Well, let's go back to the school shooting that happened at Columbine High School in April of 1999. The two gunmen took the lives of 12 students and one teacher. Several of these students were believers, and among them were Rachel Scott and Cassie Bernal. Both were 17 years old. At Rachel's memorial, they talked about her faith and how it had made a difference in the lives of the people around her. And by the end of her service, 15 people gave their lives to Christ. Now, Cassie made headlines because it was reported that the gunman had asked her if she believed in God. And when she said yes, they killed her. Her memorial was held at a church that could hold up to 1,400 people. However, that day, more than 2,000 people showed up. And during her service, they heard about the transformation that took place in Cassie's life when she gave her life to Christ only two years prior. Going from suicidal and involved in witchcraft to being an outspoken evangelist on her school campus. And by the end of her service, 75 people gave their lives to Christ. Now I wonder, if you were to ask those two young girls if they would give their lives so that these 90 other people would come into a saving relationship with their Heavenly Father if they would say yes. Would you say yes? In the Old Testament, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Now, can you imagine if this story happened today, what the headlines would look like if we heard about someone being sold into slavery by their siblings? And even though they meant it for evil, God turned it around and used it for good. God creates goodness out of man's wickedness. So why would God allow this unimaginable event to happen to these high schoolers? So that these people 
would come to know him. Remember, the point of our lives isn't to be safe and comfortable. God's not doing his best to make sure that you don't experience pain. He's making sure that the maximum number of people enter a saving relationship with him. Now, you might be asking, Sean, that's great, but what about all the times when it's not that obvious? What about all the events that happen that don't result in mass conversions? What is God doing then? Well, this brings me to my third point. Our response to tragedy can be our greatest witnessing tool. You will probably recall that in 2006, eight young Amish girls were shot in their schools, which resulted in five of them dying. And to my knowledge, there were no reports of memorial services that resulted in mass conversions. However, following those terrible events, we saw God at work. Later that same day, the grandfather of one of the victims was heard talking to some young boys, and he said, we must not think evil of this man. And what happened in the following days made the entire country take notice. A spokesman for the Amish community said, I don't think there's anyone here that wants to do anything but forgive. And not only to reach out to those who have suffered a loss in that way, but to reach out to the family of the man who committed these acts. A spokesman for the family of the gunman said that an Amish neighbor was at their door within hours to offer comfort and forgiveness. Amish community members were there to comfort his wife, his parents, and his parents-in-law, and many even attended his funeral. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-5 through says, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so through Christ our comfort also overflows. So when I look at this evil act that happened at this Amish community, I don't think that God made this happen to teach them a lesson. When I look at this, I see a man who acted out of his free will to commit an evil act. And God used this man's actions to show a country what love, mercy, and forgiveness looks like. Out of wickedness and depravity, God created beauty. So what can we take away from this story? Our response to these events in our lives plays an enormous role as our witness for Christ. When someone hurts you, are you quick to get angry? Do you want justice? Do you seek revenge on that person? Maybe what happened wasn't even that big of a deal, but you won't forgive them until they apologize to you. After all, you have the right to be angry and upset because that person wronged you. Is that your response? 
What do people see when they look at you during difficult times? Maybe a better question is, what do you want them to see? Believe me, I fully appreciate how difficult this can seem in light of some of the tragedies that can happen in our lives. And as I thought on this, I wanted to consider if there was anything that we could do now to prepare ourselves so that we could respond in the way that we would hope to respond in the event that something does happen. So here's what I'll say. Our response to the little things will dictate our response to the big things. I would be shocked to learn that these Amish families were quick-tempered or unforgiving when it came to minor offenses. The only way that they could respond with such love, compassion, and forgiveness in the midst of this horrific act was if that's how they lived their lives each and every day. They practiced love. They practiced compassion. They practiced forgiveness in the small things. So when this big thing happened, they did as they always do. They loved, they had compassion, and they forgave. The fourth point is this. We must acknowledge the pain and the loss. If you'd like to read with me, you can turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother, Lazarus, who was sick. So the sisters sent him a message. Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God so that the son of man so, sorry for the son of god may be glorified through it now jesus loved martha her sister and lazarus so when he heard that he was sick he stayed two more days in the place where he was and from verses 7 through 31 jesus eventually makes his way to mary and martha 4 days after lazarus has been buried in a tomb And we pick back up in verse 32. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those that weep. I think that acknowledging the pain is important to us and the people around us. Even Jesus, who knows that he can resurrect his friend, and is about to do just that, still cries at the loss of his friend's life. Jesus understood the pain 
that comes from loss. When tragedy strikes, when our lives suddenly take a turn that we did not expect, and when we thought what was secure gets taken away from us, and when we lose a loved one, we are not called to give robotic responses as to why God allows evil and suffering in the world. When people are in the midst of their grief, they may not want to hear that God has some grand plan of working it out in the future. They need to hear that God grieves with us. When I'm grieving, I want to know that God is next to me, that he's listening to me, and that he understands my pain. And we can absolutely celebrate when a fellow believer goes home to our Heavenly Father. That is a beautiful thing. But that doesn't mean that we can't mourn the loss. It doesn't mean that we can't hurt inside. And it doesn't mean that we can't express our disappointment. Both Mary and Martha came to Jesus and said, If you had been there, my brother would not have died. They expected Jesus to come while Lazarus was sick and heal him so that he would not die. But that's not what happened. Notice that Jesus did not rebuke them for expressing their disappointment. And even though Mary and Martha believed that Jesus was the Son of God and that he was capable of healing Lazarus, he still permitted him to die and he let Mary and Martha grieve the loss of their brother for several days. And back in verse 15, Jesus said to his disciples, I am glad for you that I wasn't there so that, so that you may believe. In other words, Jesus is saying, now that Lazarus is dead, this is going to be so much better. Wait till you see this. And once again, even though Lazarus was a friend of Jesus and his loss deeply affected him and brought him to tears, he allowed it to happen so that God would be glorified. Now, I began this sermon with a video. And in that video, a man asked, why? Why all of this misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's monstrous. He could easily have made a creation in which that didn't exist. But I'm not so sure about that. In fact, I'm convinced that it has to be this way. It took two young girls being killed in Colorado to save those 90 people. And it took the tragedy in the Amish community for the country to see how much greater God is and how he is the source of our strength. And it took Jesus dying on the cross to save mankind from their own depravity. Before Jesus was crucified, he went to a garden to pray. It was there that he said in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And in just a few verses later, Jesus says a second time, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He prayed this 
three times. And even though it's not written down in our Bibles, we know what our Heavenly Father's response was. My son, this is the only way. This is the only way to save them. Jesus didn't deserve to die. He was innocent of the crimes that they accused him of, and yet he was beaten nearly to death, only to be nailed to a cross shortly after to die a horrific death. And why did God allow this evil act? Because it was the only way to save mankind. God is not some mean bully who spreads misery and gives bone cancer to children and then commands us to thank him for it. Our Heavenly Father is a God who has done everything he can to save us and will do whatever it takes to make sure that we live in eternity with him. There are no easy answers to these questions. But the fact remains that as believers, we need a response. We need it for ourselves. And the world needs to know that the only way that this world makes any sense is in the arms of our Heavenly Father. The final point I'd like to make this morning that is so crucial to the verse in 1 Peter is this. Make sure people can see the hope that lies in you. If no one can see the hope in your life, no one can ask you for a reason that you're so hopeful. Right? That makes sense. But are you filled with hope? Or do you feel hopeless? Currently, we're surrounded by talks of the election. Now, if there's ever a time in people's lives when they feel hopeless, it's during election time. We worry about the future of our country. We worry about the future of our families. We're bombarded by news media that runs 24 hours a day. We get it from television, newspapers, Facebook, blogs, and so on. Every candidate talks about how if the other person is elected, that it'll spell a disaster for our country. And then whoever does get elected, then they get blasted on the news outlets about how they are tearing this country apart and sending us down a path of destruction. The news is great at painting a very bleak picture for our future. And we get very passionate about this subject. It fills our thoughts and it becomes a major talking point in our daily conversations. And it doesn't just have to be the elections. It can be whatever we're most passionate about. But in Matthew chapter 15, verse 17, it says, What comes from the mouth comes from the heart. And this defiles a man. When the world sees you, what do they see? Are you someone who's always worried about the direction of this country or the future of mankind in general? Do you make decisions based on fear? Last week, Pastor Wayne gave us another great sermon about giving. 
When we're pessimistic about the future, what might we do with regards to our giving? We might start giving a little less because we're fearful with what we're fearful that what we have today we may not have tomorrow. So we hold on to what we have out of fear. Fear, pessimism, disbelief, and despair are the opposite of hope. A person filled with fear is a person without hope. What message are you communicating to the world around you? What message are you communicating with your words and your actions to the people in your life, to your family, to your friends, your coworkers, or your church family? Never forget that our hope does not come from Washington. Our hope does not come from mankind. Our hope comes from Jesus. When Jesus was crucified, the disciples lost hope. They were not expecting him to come back. But our hope lies in Jesus today because he was raised from the dead, back to life. And it gets even better than that because God also sent his Holy Spirit to live inside you. Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 6 says, Be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified or afraid of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. We want people to see Jesus living in our lives. Our lives can be our greatest evangelistic tool, but only if people can see that hope lives inside you. Yes, there are terrible, evil, wicked people in this world committing atrocities against God and his children. Yes, we see pain and suffering caused by disease. But if that's all you see, then you've taken your eyes off the source of all goodness. Jesus is our hope, and he is always with us, walking beside us as we go through these difficult times in our lives. Make sure people can see the hope that lives in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for loving us that you would sacrifice your son on our behalf so that we could live. And as we walk through these difficult times in our lives, we know that you are there with us. We admit that it is hard for us to see why these things happen. And we struggle to find meaning but we know that you are the only one who can see the ultimate outcome and that you use all things for your glory. We place all of our hope in you. Amen.